Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. I'm Francis Scott here with my co-hosts, Aaron Good and Nico House. Hey, guys. What's going on, Francis? I can't complain. I'm doing pretty well. Hi, Francis. It's great here and snowy. (laughs) 70 (laughs) degrees where I am. You need to move south. It's good to see you guys. Of course, this week we're talking about you, Aaron, and your piece in the Kennedy Beacon right now. It's called The Intertwined Fates of Martin Luther King and the Kennedy Brothers. You can find it on the Beacon Substack. It posted Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, if you want to look it up, in commemoration of the federal holidays celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This podcast is dedicated to him. Now, Aaron, your political analysis of his life and his works is incredible. Your brain, I love it. I love your writing too. Let's start though with a clip from a speech that Dr. King gave in 1967 in Chicago at the National Conference on New Politics. And so we are here because we believe, we hope, we pray that something new might emerge in the political life of this nation, which will produce a new man, new structures and institutions, and a new life for mankind. I am convinced that this new life will not emerge until our nation undergoes a radical revolution of values. When machines, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look at thousands of working people displaced from their jobs with reduced income as a result of automation, while the profits of the employers remain intact and say this is not just. It will look across the oceans and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia and Africa only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, 
of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Mm, powerful words. And as we get into the conversation, we're going to find out how much those words cost him and his family, too, to speak out that way. Aaron Good, the author of American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Aaron, talk to us about why you decided to write exactly what you did, of course, about Dr. King. Well, it being Martin Luther King Day, it would be important to talk about the uh, significance of the man's life. And in the case of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign, uh, he has spoken about the need for truth and reconciliation uh, regarding the assassinations of the 60s. And that would include Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. They were killed within about two months of each other in 1968. And it really changed American history. It really seemed that there was a revolutionary uh, sentiment, more or less, or really a reformist revolutionary sentiment, if those things, if that makes sense. But that really seemed to be about the mood in 1968. And I think that the way the empire that we are still stuck with now and that is, you know, racking up quite a body count here in the last year. Um, they were horrified by what was happening in 1968, and they solved that problem by just murdering the leaders. And um, they've, they afterwards restructured a lot of them, the way American society and political economy worked. And I think part of it is to really make it so that those ideas don't have a place in the American political spectrum anymore. So I tried to look, look back at that really tumultuous time period and uh, to show how they were related because the Kennedys and, and King were, they worked together under civil rights. Kennedy did much more than Eisenhower did. And he wrote the Civil Rights Act, which, uh, but it was only passed after he died. And he gave a speech about the need to end Jim Crow, even though he relied on the Southern segregationist as part of his democratic base. So Kennedy did more than other presidents had up to that point for civil rights and uh, this was an accomplishment. But by 1968, um, that things had changed. And Martin Luther King is talking about the evil triplets, saying that you need more than just ending Jim Crow. You need to confront really the root of the problem, which is these evil triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation. And likewise, Robert Kennedy Sr., the senator, ran for president on a platform of economic justice, racial justice, and ending the war in Vietnam. So peace. So he was really echoing what Martin Luther King was saying, and he was even the one, Robert Kennedy, to suggest the Poor People's March, that you bring a multi-ethnic group of poor people to Washington and demand an end to Vietnam War spending, and that that money be directed to social programs. Uh, Martin Luther King's family believes that that's why they killed him, because he was going to do this. And uh, of course, it follows that Robert Kennedy dies to a couple, few, couple months later, and the outcome is you get Richard Nixon as president. And uh, American politics really moves hard to the right uh, as a result of these political assassinations of, this, of the 60s. 
And um, to the point that we don't even, we don't really realize, we don't recognize what happened to the left in this country. The left today is, is often strange. They sometimes, much of the left actually cheers on U.S. wars as long as they're presented with some fake humanitarian pretext. Or they really care more about uh, postmodern identity politics issues rather than these three extremely important and salient, overwhelming issues of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism, which we still haven't resolved. And um, this is really the heart of the empire. And that's why it was so powerful what he was saying. It's why he became such a threat at the end of his life, and they had to kill him because he was a real threat to that empire. Now, that empire is now, because of its own greed and brutality, has generated the opposition that's finally making it collapse. And that's what we're living through now. But back then, they were powerful enough that they could just kill this or that leader and uh, keep the project going. And that's what they did. And we need to recognize what happened. And we should not allow the state, uh, this regime, to turn Martin Luther King into a prop for the aggrandizement of an imperial project. That that wonderfully said. And I agree, especially about the postmodern identity politics point, um, because people believe that like if you don't force identity politics, then you're not actually a leftist. But there is a difference between substantive, uh, substantively dealing with racism uh, and all of its characteristics and using racism as almost like a placeholder in order to push an imperialist agenda, which is what we actually normally see, or to allow people to be complicit in the imperialist agenda. Now, Aaron, I know that uh, we on uh, the Candy Beacon podcast have talked about four diatribe. Uh, about two episodes, I think we did on it. And I wrote a review personally about the first episode of Four Die Trying. And I got to know what exactly set you on this political and intellectual path. And the reason why I'm asking, for those of you who might not uh, have ever seen me, I'm actually a black man. Might come as a surprise to some of you, but I am. And so it would make a lot of sense that I would uh, come to the same conclusion as uh, Aaron would in this particular situation. Uh, and actually... Funny enough, this is actually a point that I make regularly on my personal podcast, that I don't like the fact that Martin Luther King is oftentimes used as a prop. In some ways, he's used as a, as a, as a prop to ignore other revolutionaries. And there's only one part of his legacy that's oftentimes covered, which is the, oh, let's turn the other cheek and let's peacefully protest, uh, because they want you to think that Malcolm X, for example, or, or Fred Hampton, they're bad for being true revolutionaries in their own rights as well. So to, it's one thing to talk about JFK and RFK, obviously, but displaying how they kind of had this destiny uh, intertwined with Martin Luther King's and how, ironically, both of their destinies kind of affected each other, both in positive and negative ways, but oftentimes that the way that their destinies are intertwined go ignored. So how did you personally, as a white man, to be honest, I don't know if y'all know this, but Aaron is white um, as well. So I'm black and he's white. So we generally would come to conclusions in uh, through different lenses, but it seems like we actually came to the conclusion, the same conclusion via the same lens. And I'm curious as to how you arrived there. Well, some of it has, has to do with the fact that, uh, I really did want to solve the problems of the militarism and imperialism and that through the Bush years, which were when I was in early adulthood. And I thought that Obama was going to do these things. And so I worked on the campaign. I went to the inauguration, you know, it was part of the staff. Uh, I saw Jay-Z play at the inaugural ball, very cool stuff. But then afterwards he does the same things as George Bush. Mostly he kind of puts a good face on it. And it made me look more uh, deeply at 
uh, the real structures of empire that, that we can't see that produce this illusion where you'd get something as phony and false as Obama and it would end up just being the same thing. It's like empire is more powerful. So I wanted to look deeper and uh, I started to look at the assassinations of the 60s and, and the high crimes of uh, the state really in, in eliminating these people, but in also making sure that like that that is not the consensus view of uh, the mainstream that that happens. So they just can kill people and get away with it. And uh, we per we think that we live in this democratic society somehow because they just insist on maintaining that illusion. It doesn't matter how many people don't believe the Kennedy assassination story, for example. It's like, that's all. We can't do anything about it. So there's those issues which are important. And then I also had was lucky in some ways to get to teach classes at Temple. They kind of assign you general ed things based on your interests. And I taught history and significance of race in America, which really made me think more about race and uh, about whiteness in general as a thing. And it's it's not so much a ethnic, you know, character, a phenotype. It's a it's a political condition, really, and mm. uh, it it only makes Hold sense. Uh, 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 if uh, there's not, if there's... I don't think they heard you in the back. Uh, uh you gotta say that again. What'd you say about whiteness? Say that again, please. Whiteness as a as a thing, culturally and historically, is not about like ethnicity or phenotype. It's really about a, it's a political condition. It's kind of a mentality. Oof. And expand it, on I, that. It is not good. <laughs> The, the what really blows my mind or what blew my mind to understand it is that it's actually not good for white people on the whole in the United States to have this. And if you think back on it, think about before, think about the South, right, where white supremacy was the strongest. It's also the place where what where the median white person was the worst off in the United mm -hmm. States because the, the, the racist planters owned everything and they used black people for labor, black African slaves. And uh, the white people, but the white people were sort of conned. The poorer people were conned into believing like they were on Team Whitey, when they weren't at all. It was cheap, they had it the worst labor. of any white. Yeah, people. you weren't a slave, but the labor was basically you. It was basically the same. You're just getting paid a little more than nothing. Yeah, they had it better than black slaves, but they had it the worst mm -hmm. of white people anywhere in the U.S. because of this, and and so and because of like Scandinavia, for example, they have universal health care, social democracy, and all these things because in part because there's no race to divide people on politically. So race is really a whiteness is a con, and uh, this is uh, mm -hmm. something that you have to understand. And you know, Malcolm X was really starting to understand this later. People like W.E.B. Du Bois, who talked about the psychic wage of whiteness, the black radical tradition can teach us a lot about, about this country if you understand it. And if you do understand that all people are equal, then you'd have to look at these issues of structural racism and inequality and think we need to really, really change this. We don't need just to jury rig it at the end with like tokenism so that, oh, you know, X amount of administrators are black. Like this is, that's, that is at best a temporary thing. At worst, it's a recipe just to make people at each other's throats forever about this issue. Because you, at you the can't word, have just Clarence Thomas. I mean, there, <laughs> there's so many ways you could go with this. So, you know, I think that understanding race and our shared humanity and uh, is is important, and the way that it the the way that race in America helps to in, in support this oligarchy, which now is just this oligarchy of corporate wealth. They don't need the plantations anymore, so they could they're just as happy to use black people as props sometimes or for PR purposes, uh, so that they can show how enlightened they are. But it's a uh, this is this system it is just as vicious and exploitative and deadly as what uh, MLK was talking about, maybe even really more because it's on a bigger scale.
Brands, I know you have a question. I want to uh, bring up this point because it's in Aaron's article really quick. Mm-hmm. And what Aaron is saying is, is so, it's so uh, expertly demonstrated in the article when he writes about how Kennedy, in his mind, believing that there would be actually political pushback from uh, the segregationists in the Dixiecrat South, and yet he chose to do the right thing anyway when it came to advocating on behalf of freeing Martin Luther King. And he ended up benefiting from it because of that, which actually directly led to the country as a whole benefiting from it. Now, if he would have leaned on his whiteness instead on like, oh, what should I do as a white man and hide behind his political whiteness, so to speak, who knows where we would be at and who knows if we would even have been able to enjoy the experience of Martin Luther King going forward. So everything he's saying is, is backed by history. Yeah, such and such keep us divided. And then, you know, then it becomes big versus little and big always wins. Mm-hmm. We're busy fighting little, you know, skirmishes down here at the bottom. And then the big guys get away. Aaron, you talked earlier about they killed him or they killed them. For people who might not be familiar, explain who the they is. You always hear, who's they? Who's they? You say they this, they that. Who's the they? Back then well, and now. It, yeah. It, in this article, I, you could say I was remiss because I really didn't go into detail about the civil trial that the King family uh, held against the, um, well, against the, the, a person who was involved in the conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King. And he confessed to it. He confessed and said, I took $100,000 to be a part of this plot and this is how it happened. And they demonstrated other things at the trial, like that there was military intelligence that, that was involved. One of the people standing over MLK when he when he died, it turns out, was a CIA officer. I think the guy's name was McCullough, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, and that he was being totally surveilled by Hoover and so on. Um, and so K- Kennedy or the King was harassed by these people. They sent him a letter telling him to kill himself. The FBI did um, at one point. And they tried to blackmail him in different ways. Uh, he w- th- these forces are th- you know these forces related to the national security state so Hoover FBI CIA and then they have these alliances with the mob and they can work with other local corrupt people local corrupt cops it's just this kind of American deep state it's a apparatus that interfaces with the national security state but also with organized crime other networks overseas you can they can utilize terror networks etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is a way. <clears throat> that the U.S. empire can functionally act as a, as a dictatorship. They can break laws and get the outcomes they want, up to and including murdering leaders that they don't want. And then they can just have a cover story, you know, they use clandestine service to uh, do a covert operation and get rid of somebody. And they can do it up to and including the president of the United States, if it comes down to it, or a preacher uh, like Martin Luther King or a Candidate. senator like Robert Kennedy or... Uh, a local leader, you know, an, an, an Islam, an Islam, well, a Muslim political leader. This was basically what Malcolm X had transitioned to. He went from being a Muslim figure to being really as much political as being Muslim. Uh, they can kill all these people. They can just knock them off and say, oh, we didn't do that. Are we any that's, closer? that's a powerful thing. Are we any closer as just the average American people? Because, you know, we have more than one news source now. And a lot of us have found out and have realized like, hey, always given the the real story and so we've gone and we found other you know other voices and figured out for ourselves what we believe is true are we any closer to figuring this out are, are more of us i mean we have to be right the more of us have to know than in you know in the 60s 
Well, yeah, I think that what is happening now, there are more people that are aware of this. I mean, really, in the 1970s, that's when it got down to like single digit support for the Warren Commission's verdict on the JFK case. And they've, they've pushed that back a little bit, but still the majority is suspicious about that. I think that what is going to happen is that the ability to deal with these things may increase as this empire collapses because the more that this mm. whole edifice of what the U.S. has been for decades is revealed as a fraud, then these other things that you could think of which as being settled were um, – they're suddenly revisited. We're thinking like, wait a second, this, what we're seeing now is not something that you can reconcile with this happy version of the United States. And so what about these other things that happened in the past? What about the JFK assassination? Like these people fight wars and lie over them and they act without any impunity at all. They're sort of criminal, uh, this oligarchy that rules us and uh, we don't know how to deal with it. Um, and, and, I think that as the the dominance of the prevailing order weakens, um, they're going to uh, find that these things may come to come come step into the fore. And I personally believe that it's going to be obvious that the empire has run its course, and there's going to be a need for real reform. I believe that looking at some of these events could be a dramatic way to uh, produce a kind of shock that would be good politically to say, like, look. Here's the world happened. isn't the way you think it is. This is what has happened. Yeah. We need to reform this. We need to come up with something different. We need to understand how yeah. we got here. And part of it is that democracy was never really allowed to work because if the mm -hmm. oligarchy decided, oh, we don't really like the way this is headed, you know, they could shoot. You know, they could just shoot the leaders or yeah, you know what it reminds rig elections, etc., etc. Et it reminds me of, you know, because uh, you're all a little bit older than me, but I have uh, a nephew. I've been a child. You know that conversation you might have had with your child when you're trying to tell them what's best for them? when they're young and they're not really hearing it. They're like, all right, whatever, mom, whatever, dad. All right. But then when they get older, they end up, you know, having to deal with real life might come up on hard times. They have to deal with their first failures or maybe they're not understanding how the system and the world really works. And now they're like, hold on, mom, what was you saying before about, you know, X, Y, and Z about college or about ha having to, to stand up for myself or whatever that conversation may be. It's basically where we're at. The people we've had these conversations before Aaron, being one of the key figures in having these conversations and him and David, for example. Um, and now because things have gotten so bad, people are like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Come here real quick. Let's have that conversation again. Now, how did you say we got here? Cause I'm kind of confused. Cause I was told everything was okay and that we had a democracy. And now I'm starting to feel like maybe we didn't just wake up and end up here that there was something in what you're saying. I feel like that's where we're at. And as far as the, the um, Martin Luther King addressing the the imperialism that we've seen over he talks about you know basically raping africa of its resources talking about the unholy matrimony of relationships that we have in latin america um all that stuff even the the relationship between the government and corporations the toxic relationship that they have ironically the deep state the they that aaron is talking about has a direct hand in all of that so it makes it even more clear that of course they had a hand and because he, along with RFK, along with JFK, along with the Fred Hamptons of the world and other people who have been assassinated that that don't really get, you know, the credit that they deserve in that time period. Um, John Lennon I could, would probably be another one um, like they were directly addressing things that you may have not connected as being part of the deep state before. 
But now that you see that you're opening your eyes and seeing how the world really works, a lot of people are uh, now. I think it is the time for that shock that Aaron was talking about. How do you feel that um, RFK Jr. can play a role in dismantling this apparatus? Because obviously people have tried before. Uh, and we're in a different world, but unfortunately, some of the players are the game board still the same, even though some of the players might have changed. So how do you think that he can have a role in dismantling that apparatus? Well, I think that part of what is happening is not so much that he out of out of nowhere has come out with this campaign and and inspired people purely on the strength of his own personality. It's that the time is right. The forces that killed his father are are weaker and his uncle they are weaker and they're kind of un, unsustainable anymore. We're on a trajectory that is just unsustainable. They can't really continue to do what they have done in the past. And so that opens up a space for this kind of a candidacy because I really believe that even much of the oligarchy, if they are sober about it, would think what he is calling for is necessary. He's called for, among other things, I mean, he wants to wind down the military, shut down the bases, cut the military base budget in half as soon as possible, and uh, also to stop the coups and overthrows in other countries, to root out corporate corruption in the federal bureaucracy, and to have a truth and reconciliation uh, process in the U.S. to investigate all four of those assassinations of the 60s. He signed a statement saying that the assassinations of JFK, MLK, Malcolm X, and Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy were all related to the U.S. Uh, intelligence, the national security state, and that there should be a truth and reconciliation process with disclosure as a way to deal with this going forward. So he wants to do that as president. Now, he still has many other things to overcome, including the own, our own uh, kind of unassailable orthodoxies of the day, which uh, are very difficult for anyone to navigate successfully politically. Uh, but if he can find a way to do that and reach out to the people uh, who recognize just how much change we we need, and that we really can't afford another uh, two another four years with the duopoly in charge. Uh, I think that he could be the person. He could be the instrument to make this happen. He if he uh, if things go the way that they should. Now you talked about and you mentioned earlier the empire collapsing. Just just those words might spook Americans, but. You're saying that's not necessarily going to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be. Explain if that. The, this, it is the collapse of the empire, which is Meaning every America. empire in history. Not America, the nation okay. state. I mean right, the right. global dominance project. Mm -hmm. The global dominance project. I'm not saying the American nation state. I'm saying the global dominance project. That empire. The shadowy figures pulling, well, pulling off the, the whole The whole system of setting things up so that Whatever happens, the U.S. is on top and has the biggest military and makes the most, and the corporations make the most money. That's really what, how the empire has functioned, and every empire is going to collapse. And what we are seeing now is the collapse of this empire. And especially, eventually, one of the things that will happen dramatically is the dollar will no longer be the world's uh, reserve currency, and therefore the U.S. will no longer have the exorbitant privilege of running huge military-based budget deficits year after year. Uh, which allow it to encircle the rest of the world in military bases. These things are going to happen. Uh, I don't see any way that this is going to be reversed. And so the sooner that we recognize this, rather than trying to throw more, you know, more lives and resources into this, the better chance we have to uh, to reform it. We won't just uh, expand the monetary supply and kick the can <laughs> even further down the road? 
If yeah. the I mean, rest yeah. of what's the rest of the world stop, uh, the other countries have run into problems because they owe money in dollars and they can't create infinite dollars. That's why all these other countries have debt crises, but the U.S. never does, no matter how big it, even though it's got the world's biggest budget deficits well, year in, year out. And that's because of the situation with the dollar. So but it's different now. The, it started, it will, there's more and more moves towards de-dollarization, and that is going to be one significant aspect of it. And the more that the U.S. delegitimizes itself and makes itself hated on the world stage, it is more universally recognized as a global bully. Mm-hmm no regard for human life, racking up a body count that defies belief, the more, especially towards the global South, the more these countries and the more that like China and other countries actually develop enough that they can be an alternative, that there is a viable alternative, the more that forces, dialectical forces are just going to move against the U.S. empire and the balance of power is shifting radically uh, and inexorably, I believe. And so they can, if, if, the establishment can recognize this. They can make adjustments because the sooner they do, the better. I think it would be better to cooperate with the rest of the world and we could have world peace. It's right around the corner. There's no problem in terms of war and peace that's really that difficult to solve right now. The main barrier has been the U.S. refusal to deal with any of these problems because we see these problems as being good for the empire. And 100%. we don't need to fight in Taiwan. We don't need to fight in the Middle East. We don't need to fight in Eastern Europe. All of those things could be very easily solved if the U.S. would uh, more or less just conform to international law and, and stop uh, exacerbating conflicts. Buckle up, everybody. Francis. Yes, sir. I would say that um, Russia and China aren't catching up. They've already caught up, mm. and they're just extending an olive branch, mm. waiting for us to figure out if we've if we've noticed yet. And they're only I, I imagine their patience is only going to wear so thin before they start to do something about it. Yeah, buckle up. It's a, it's time. We need an honest leader. We need one um, that's dedicated to peace, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. don't have a choice anymore. So thanks, guys. Awesome conversation. I learned so much. Every time you guys open your mouths, appreciate that. Um, I want to say to our listeners, on behalf of all of us at the Kennedy Beacon, thanks for joining us. And thank you, Aaron, for that amazing piece of writing, having the conversation with us about it today. And also we invite you, our audience, to check out the Kennedy Beacon Substack. And you can read for yourself Aaron's column and many of the articles and articles and columns written by truly amazing writers like Aaron and Nico. And sometimes I get get one in there, slid in there too. Also David Talbot and Dick Russell, so many other writers, very unique perspectives that you will not find anywhere else. It's absolutely free. And there are literally dozens of articles touching on numerous issues impacting all of us. Please, if you like it, follow it, share it, tell a friend about it. We would really appreciate that. And we thank you for joining us today. We hope you'll join us next week for a new episode of the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. 